This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. They know you're here for good content, so they're not going to waste your time with a long pitch. Here are the three things you need to remember and know about Iron Source. Number one, they're developing the most robust data-driven growth engine for mobile games. Number two, their secret sauce is closing the monetization marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth. And number three, they have an awesome Medium blog and podcast called Level Up. You can find it on Medium by searching for Iron Source Level Up. Thanks. Hey everybody, welcome. Today we have a very special guest with us, Jory Pearsall, who has until very recently been SVP of product and studio GM at mobile gaming giant Scopely. Welcome, Jory. Hi, uh, thanks. Great to be here. I'll let Jory tell us more about his background and career, but Jory's had a really successful career as a product manager and then leading product. And the focus of our discussion today will be now that Jory, you're kind of transitioning out of mobile gaming, but It'd be really great to kind of hear what some of the key lessons that you've learned from mobile and free-to-play were. And given that mobile and free-to-play relative to other verticals is a lot more sophisticated, it'd be great to also see what you'll be able to apply outside of gaming. But in particular, I wanted to hit on some specific areas that I think are relevant from a mobile and free-to-play perspective and really kind of like five areas. First is monetization. Second is live ops and testing. Third, product culture and team building. Fourth, what are some of these key lessons that you think you'll be able to apply to other industries? And fifth, just because it's relevant and topical, kind of like the potential impact of coronavirus to, to the gaming industry. But just to kind of kick it off, it'd be great to start with some context about you, Joy. Can you walk us through your background and career in gaming to date? Sure, happy to. Um, and I think, yeah, talking about how I entered gaming will also help contextualize uh, some of the reasons why I'm I'm taking the opportunity to exit now. So I actually started off at Google, um, focusing on user acquisition and product marketing on the Google Maps team. Um, so I'm I came into the industry through more of a technology background. I had the opportunity to uh, spend some time leading APAC marketing for Google Maps um, and really uh, uh, spending a good amount of time in developing markets uh, like Thailand, India, doing work with our teams in Malaysia and elsewhere to launch new Google Maps products. And that's really what led me from that APAC marketing role into a position in Google Tokyo, uh, working on the Android team, uh, supporting the launch of, uh, of new Android devices across the APAC region as we were rolling out the platform at the time. And, uh, you know, it was a very interesting kind of insightful period of time because I was getting to witness firsthand this basically rise of global smartphone adoption, seeing how behavioral patterns were changing firsthand from the platform perspective and being in Japan, kind of getting a sneak preview into this uh, very nascent growing wave of free-to-play mobile gaming. So when, uh, when I returned back to the US, you know, I was, I was really inspired by this opportunity to get into this uh, emerging industry of free-to-play mobile games that, that this kind of platform revolution was bringing around. I've been a gamer um, my whole life, really love the social aspect, social dynamic of it. And it just felt like the perfect combination of a rising tide, um, emergent kind of space and 
and really a, an ability to help bring more social gaming experiences to the masses at a scale that that hadn't been the case before. So I ended up uh, joining a company called Gree as they opened their U.S. offices. Uh, it's a Japanese gaming company and worked on the second party products uh, at Gree, which is effectively the uh, the publishing games um, from Gree. And that's really where I learned my product chops and learn the kind of ins and outs of free to play gaming. And, you know, particularly when it comes to RPGs and, uh, and JRPGs got to get a lot of firsthand lessons from, from some of the experts directly. About six years ago, I made the jump to Scopely where I, I really joined. It was a, a very interesting, exciting time for Scopely. Um, they were I think, really just starting to solidify platform strategy and approach to development and had a lot of ambitions for what they wanted to be and, um, and where they could go. And it was, it was just a very exciting mission and, and mandate for me to be a part of. So I jumped in to build out the product management organization, kind of establish modern live operations, live service orientation across the company, and then really build out the new business lines in the company, particularly around mid-core games. And that was, that was a six-year journey for me across a number of different stages of evolution of the company from pre-Series A to the very mature, very exciting uh, position that Scopely is in today, able to ship games at a massive scale and uh, do really impressive M&A opportunities and, and really just, I think, go from a company fighting for survival to a company that was fighting for relevance to now a company that can compete in the I'd say like upper echelons of, of free to mobile, free to play mobile gaming. So wild ride and, uh, and, you know, something that I, I look back on very fondly and, and I'm very proud of. Right. And now you're kind of making this next transition. Can you tell us a little bit more about that in terms of, you know, your new role and then what is kind of the motivation to kind of shift away from gaming now? Yeah. I mean, I think um, I've, I've always, love my experience in gaming. I've loved being able to deliver experiences to users at a massive scale and to be able to play an impact in, in people's lives in terms of how they consume entertainment and, and the social engagements that they pursue. But over the years, I've, I've had this kind of nagging feeling of, uh, of, could I do more? Could I, could I play a larger role in impacting people's lives? Could I make more of a social impact through the work that I'm doing? And if I'm going to be working this hard and, and throwing myself at problems with this level of intensity, what, what's the kind of output or outcome that I want from that work? And really that led me to a unique, exciting opportunity at a company called Tala, which is based in Santa Monica. Um, it has offices um, in a number of countries around the world. And, uh, and yeah, it was just kind of a, a perfect synergy of a role that's really exciting for me at a personal level and learning opportunity that's, uh, that's quite large um, and an amazing mission. So um, at Tala, I've, I've recently joined as chief product officer and joining in on this really cool mission to expand financial access, choice, and control to billions of underserved people globally. Right. So is this like microloans to developing countries delivered through the app? 
that is that is one of the core offerings right now okay. yes um yeah the loans are relatively small in size um and then basically people have the opportunity as they build more history and you know we get more data we can actually expand their access to credit the size of the loans over time and, and help these people kind of walk up that financial ladder to really kind of serve that idea of enabling the emerging middle class is this like a two-sided market as well? So you're getting people who are borrowing and then, and then are you also on the other side, are you also trying to get the lenders? Uh, we, we are the full cycle solution. Ah, okay, um, got, it, got it. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're doing the lending ourselves. Um, we're kind of owning and managing that customer relationship. And, and the idea is to really build a relationship over time, right? Because we don't want to be a transactional product. <clears throat> we want to be sort of the kind of the, the focal point that, you know, like the, the trusted relationship that helps these consumers kind of build towards the financial goals that they have over time. Okay, cool. It'd be great to now kind of look, looking back over your time in gaming to really think about some of these key lessons that you've learned and how you could potentially apply it. But I, I thought we'd first start with this first topic around monetization. And it seems like when we think about different verticals that this is one of the biggest areas of difference when we talk about you know mobile gaming free to play in, in terms of the sophistication there and just experience within our our industry so could you talk about maybe you know one or two of the biggest lessons you've learned in, in terms of monetization definitely um and there are two that really come to mind for me the first i would describe as a good monetization versus bad monetization and the the second is you know willingness to spend versus what I think of as spend enablement. So starting with the first, right? Good monetization versus bad monetization. You know, I think this is something that particularly as you are entering the space uh, is easy to get confused or, or easy to not really think about. And is some it's, it's basically a trap that I see green product managers falling into relatively often. And a lot of it comes down to time horizons and, and just like understanding of, of who your players really are, right? And so when I talk about good monetization, that's basically the concept of delivering long-term value, delivering deeper engagement, delivering, you know, real progression and gameplay to your users. This is something I think, you know, the best RPGs in the world do really, really well, right? Like allowing you to invest in a character in a squad um, and see more and more value over time and more kind of ability to have more meaningful game experiences and social experiences from the investment that you're making in in those characters on the other hand you have bad monetization right um, which i think we we've seen a ton of in the early days of free to play and thankfully um thankfully is uh i think getting weeded out just by the competitiveness of the market but Bad monetization is effectively doing things like pulling revenue forward, right? Like having a sale or um, inflating your game economy um, or avert spin to win kind of tactics, right? And I say spin to win versus play to win because I think of them slightly differently. And so, yeah, I mean, just kind of touching on a few of those quickly. Effectively, if you offer a sale with no kind of incremental activity paired with that sale, no way to kind of sync the currency or, or items that you're selling to a user, you're effectively just pulling money forward that they would have spent another time, 
right? And and we'll likely see kind of a a depression in revenue or a depression in uh, in spending following that sale. Um, so it's really just shifting money around versus actually creating value. Likewise, there's uh, there's some pretty famous stories. I think it's a really interesting case study. If you look at um, some of the the most successful, um, historically most successful Forex games um, in the space, and you look at ones that have really kind of fallen off from a revenue perspective, one trend that has happened in, in at least a couple of these games is hyperinflation, right? Because mm -hmm. basically, if you're trying to make revenue today, selling something more powerful is a very, very easy lever to pull in order to make that happen. But every time you increase your power curve, you're basically eating away from the back end of your game, eating away from the life cycle of your game. So you can see these like massive pops in terms of revenue and short-term engagement spikes, but really you're just kind of eating the longevity of your game. Um, so we've seen some games kind of like catastrophically burn out over the years in, in large part, I think, due to this kind of hyperinflation mentality. Right. Jory, maybe I could ask you a little bit in terms of like the, as far as when you, when you talk about pulling revenue forward, I mean, in, in many cases, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it, I've seen it a lot, people will declare a win because of some sale or whatever. And then, so how can you tell when it's good spend versus bad spend? Like what kind, what kind of analysis do you do to realize that, yeah, you're not just bringing revenue forward, that it is better spend and that the revenue and the, the ARPU is going to continue to stack over time? Yeah, I think, um, I think one of the most simple ways to look at whether the spend is good or bad is, um, is whether the spend is increasing or is contributing to increased engagement or not, right? Mm -hmm. if, you, if you create an opportunity to spend that then immediately translates into meaningful increases in engagement, it's very likely that's going to be accretive from an ARPU perspective. If on the other hand, you are creating spend opportunities that effectively allow players to shortcut playing the game or mm -hmm. to... Uh, to basically just, you know, insta win an event. Those are the type of things that you will oftentimes see immediate hangovers from or see churn events from because, yeah. you know, players that aren't spending are not going to love that. And even like the satisfaction of, you can think of it like the game genie effect. Like if you remember the game genie back in the day, it's like cheat codes to your games, right? You can like have infinite lives, whatever. Um, really, really fun to play for like, 15 minutes or an hour, but then you're kind of done with the game after that. You've, you've kind of used it up, right? So if you're game genieing your players, yeah, you might get a win today, but you're going you're gonna to have kind of meaningful implications that, that generally just tie directly back to your engagement metrics. Right. No, I, th I think that's great because the, the only other way would be to watch ARPU over like a really long period of time, right? And so... Yeah, being able to have some kind of shortcut metrics to be able to tell is definitely very useful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and that's the thing, right? It's like the, the more engaged your users are, the, uh, the more opportunities you have to create compelling experiences for them down the road as well. The one other thing that, that I, I often think about when you talk about like pulling money forward and good versus bad is that sometimes you don't know what the the knock-on effects are like the, the trace route of what happens when you pull forward revenue, right? Like whether it's, there's going to be an impact to how, depending on how deep your economy is, like how far have you pushed them? And 
uh, things like that. But uh, yeah, it, it does seem that because we are in free to play and mobile that all this level of sophistication, the interconnectedness is definitely at a level unlike other, other industries. Yeah, I mean, the other great thing is you also do have wallet balances that you can look at relatively easily, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, and that's, that's one of the, I think, easiest indicators in terms of whether you have a problem or not. Right. right? Um, because yeah, oftentimes, particularly with sales, a good sale, you see a big spike in terms of a player's wallet balance, and then you have an event that immediately zeroes that balance back out to what it was before. Bad sales, players accumulate a ton of currency and then they sit on it because they don't have meaningful things to spend on it right now. And then in terms of the wallet balance, are you just looking for like the, the general level of the, the kind of hard and soft currency as well as like the, the turn? Yeah, it's, it's basically like, what is, what is that balance leveling out at and what's the inflow outflow, okay. right? So yeah, basically when you release a sale, you're going to see a huge inflow of currency into the wallet. But then, you know, that outflow could be anywhere from kind of business as usual, if you're not doing anything meaningful to, uh, to engage your players to massively spiking as well, which is what you would want to see. The other monetization topic that's probably worth touching on is, uh, what I like to think of as the axis of willingness to spend versus spend enablement. And basically the way I define that is on one hand, you have your player's willingness to spend, which in many ways is their love of the game, love of the experience, their brand affinity, right? So you can imagine um, everything from take like a, a League of Legends or a PUBG where you know, if you give players an opportunity to spend, they are likely to take it because there's just so much passion for, for that game and that ecosystem. Spend enablement, on the other hand, is really like how efficiently are you giving your players opportunities to spend and giving them value props for that spend that makes sense, like kind of maximizing the, the spend opportunity. Um, and this is where I think 4X as a category has done a fantastic job and I think one of the things that leads to some of the really outsized ARPU curves that you see in the category more broadly. But effectively, on that willingness to spend and spend enablement axis, if you have low willingness to spend and you're not good at enabling spend, you're effectively dead in the water, right? And that ends up being the case for, for a lot of products. On the other hand, getting to that sweet spot in the upper right corner of high willingness to spend, high spend enablement, is effectively the unicorn goal. And that's, that's what I think we should all be striving toward, right? It's like, how do we create experiences that create real brand affinity, that create real love for the game, and then leverage all of the tools and learnings and, and technology and data at our fingertips to provide the right targeted offers at the right time, the right incentives for spending, the right kind of depth of economy that um, that creates the opportunity to become a very, very long-term engaged spender and really kind of top of mind, top of wallet when it comes to spending on entertainment. Right. So it almost sounds like you're kind of looking at spend from like a supply and demand perspective. And you're saying you got to optimize on both sides. Is that effectively what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, I mean, some some games have had a really hard time delivering on supply and have been able to be hyper successful in spite of that, usually with just massively scaled audiences. Some games have, on the other hand, been really good 
on the supply side, but uh, but serving like a very very small um, or very churn oriented audience. Right. Moving to the next area, which is live ops and testing, and so I think that this there's so much we could potentially talk about from a live ops perspective, but it does seem like this is one of the areas, at least in mobile gaming, where there's like a big gap between different teams in the industry, right? And so there are mm -hmm. some teams which are really successful on multiple games, improving those games a lot. And there are some teams that don't have that level of consistency or level of effectiveness. And so really wanted to ask you, Joy, in terms of what you've seen and based on your experience, what is it that differentiates the really effective teams, the non-effective teams, and what are some of the big lessons that you have taken away and that other people could benefit from? Yeah, live ops is an area that's been pretty pretty near and dear to my uh, heart over the years in, in free-to-play yeah. mobile gaming. And the thing that stood out to me over that period of time is really that winning teams focus on the experience they are creating, you know, full stop. My first manager, um, Ag Araki uh, from from Gree, it's like kind of a a bit of a legend in the Japanese mobile free to play gaming space. Created some of like the the really cool first breakout uh, mobile gaming hits in Japan. But one of the first lessons that he taught me uh, when I was working for him is that the goal of live ops is uh, is really to surprise and delight players every time they open the app. So basically, every day there's a reason to come back, and you know, paraphrasing a bit, a sense of FOMO if they don't. Right. Um, and I think if you deliver on that, you're in a really, really like that, that at its core is, is what live ops is meant to do. Right. I think a lot of times it gets translated these days into live ops means running sales or, you know, pushing new content, but really it's about providing an experience that's exciting and engaging and, and new and dynamic. The other big lesson I would say is that um, when it comes to live ops, it has to be personal. Um, I would say bad live ops is very generic and good live ops, um, a good live ops team effectively is going to be allergic to averages. And just to kind of, you know, clarify what I mean a little bit, it's like, imagine your average player is level 55, right? Just kind of making up a game, making up a number. If you made a live ops event catered for the level 55 experience, it's probably going to be a pretty bad experience for your new players. It's probably going to be a pretty bad experience for your most engaged high-level players, right? Um, so you really have to have a focus on player lifecycle and basically creating dynamic content, dynamic difficulty that matches where a player actually is in their experience. I think, you know, that's that can be a tall order, but I think if you break it down life cycle events, like basically saying generically, when a player is at stage X in the game, what type of event and experience actually makes sense to them. That's something I feel like everyone should be able to focus on and deliver on. Whereas, you know, some of the more dynamic optimization might take more tech tools, talent, focus to deliver. But just having that kind of player oriented and personalized um, experience orientation, I think, is is really the key to good live ops. When you talk about surprising and delighting your players, so you're saying it's not just about sales, it's not just about a con content cadence. So, like, what should the the mindset be of a product manager thinking about the roadmap for live ops? You know, how do you design in, or how do you plan for that surprise and delight? Is it 
by, for example, having like a regular cadence of stuff, but then trying to think of in Zynga terminology, a bold beat every once in a while, or is it like, what should the high level thought process be to deliver on that? Yeah, I would say it comes down to evolution and, and dynamism, if I had to really boil it down, right? And I think the evolution piece really is about those, yeah, let's call it bold beats for the sake of simplicity, um, which is basically like signposting, like what is going to be new in the game experience? What's going to be new in how you interact with, take RPGs, for example, how you interact with characters, with your roster, with the kind of competition, right? Um, and that's something you can map out for months or years um, and really kind of deliver on. But the dynamic piece, I think, is is really where you can be creative, can enable surprises and enable just kind of a responsive mentality, right? So, I mean, as simple as um, if you see a change in the ecosystem or you see your players asking for something or interested in something, just delivering on that, right? I mean, it, it could be, I mean, even if you take uh, our kind of current COVID world, right? Like um, if we know that a huge portion of our players are going to have more free time on their hands and are probably looking to mobile games more and more as, as an opportunity to connect and to, you know, escape in some cases, why not offer some incremental events that are very engagement oriented, right? Do free energy happy hours, just like things that are are kind of showing that you are connected to the here and now of where your players are. Right. And then in terms of like how you determine whether you're successful against that goal, the, the surprise and delight goal, I mean, is that something that you try to measure? Is that more of a feeling? How do you know you're successfully executing against that? It really boils down to the key metrics that you know, live ops teams and product teams are generally oriented around, right? Okay. It boils back to those same engagement metrics and uh, and kind of ARPU-related uh, monetization metrics. Because um, I think of it more as like this is this is the the kind of I guess top of the funnel. Like, why are we doing this? But what that actually translates down into is like players should want to engage more. Their kind of stickiness day over day should be higher. You know, if you announce a new event, you should see engagement spike around that event. You should see monetization spike around that event. If you're evolving the meta, you should see the kind of durability of your late game revenue be stronger. Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of signals that are are basically like the core metrics are always trying to optimize. But the surprise and delight is more just like a principle on how to deliver on growing those metrics. Right. And then in terms of the second point you raised, as far as the personalization for product managers out there who might be thinking about how to deliver on that, have you guys built a stack of in-house technology to deliver on that? Or are there tools that people should be looking at to be able to try and deliver some of that personalization? During my time at Scopely, we made a massive investment in our platform and and tooling and just analytical capabilities. in large part expressly to deliver on this level of personalization. That is not something that is cheap or easy to replicate, but I think you can start simple and become more sophisticated as as you evolve, right? 
even having a small number of segments, and there are plenty of tools out there, free, there are plenty of available tools that can help you deliver on segmentation and kind of like personalized messaging. But even starting with a few core segments based on player lifecycle is going to be much, much better than, uh, than a generic experience for everyone. Yeah. That's why I'd say it's just like start, start simple, and then as you execute well on the simple segmentation, then become more sophisticated. You don't need to have a totally dynamic, personalized, uh, super complex, uh, dynamic pricing structure on day one if you're kind of a 12-person team trying to hack a product together, right? And then as far as the personalization is concerned, if we're trying to think about personalization from a high-level perspective in terms of different areas that you can deliver personalization. So I think there's certainly sales and offers. I think the other area is potentially Fatui, depending on how you came in from, from a UA perspective. Then there's difficulty, especially for a lot of like these puzzle games. But are there other areas of personalization that we should be thinking about? I think there's actually a really interesting element that most companies are just scratching the surface of right now, but I think will become more and more relevant over time of actually personalizing the content and game experiences that we are servicing to different players based on how they like to play. I mean, to, to take a parallel, right? It's like when you go to Netflix, your Netflix queue looks totally different than mine, right? you know, what Netflix thinks you want to watch and what you want to prioritize watching is very different than, than what I'm going to prioritize watching. Similarly, you take these deep, rich gaming experiences that have tons of different features. I think there's a real opportunity to help surface those game experiences in a way that resonates with, uh, with individual players rather than creating this generic, optimized for the average onboarding experience, or even just daily gameplay session experience. Got it. Okay. But, yeah. Still early days, I think, for most companies in that area. Right. After the break, more from Jory about product culture and team building, key lessons to apply from free-to-play and mobile to other industries, and also the impact of coronavirus long-term on the mobile gaming industry. That's coming up after the break. Welcome back to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. We're back with Jory Pearsall on the biggest lessons he's learned from his career in gaming. Moving to the next area, which is product culture and team building. And I, I think this is one of the areas that I find is probably the least talked about. A lot of the game studios and a lot of the people that I talk to, it's always about you know the product, about analytics, about different issues related to the product and less emphasis on actually the engine that builds the product and the team. And so it'd be great to get your thoughts in terms of how you define product culture and generally in your experience, how are you approaching or thinking, thinking about building a team or having that team improve over time? I think this is one of the most critical areas in, in building a successful team, successful product, successful company. And yeah, I, I totally agree. It's, it's not talked about enough. I think it's undervalued compared to other things. But for me, it really, the most important step one is just defining a product culture, you know, putting a flag in the ground for what your vision is and, and how you choose to operate. This is one of the first things that I invested in at Scopely. And, and similarly, I just finished week two at Tala and this is something I'm already workshopping with my new team. 
because uh, I just think it's it's mission critical, really. And uh, you know, I think just talking about a couple different elements of that. The first is, you know, what is the role of product, right? This will be different at different companies. This will be different amongst different product leaders. For me, it really boils down to um, a couple of key principles, right? I think product should be a driver of vision. I think that product leaders need to be true leaders and demonstrate leadership. And the leadership needs to come from insights, right? Like a deep understanding of the data, the users, and what to do with that data that they are kind of consuming and, and looking into every day. And, you know, basically like tying that line between the vision of where you're going and the insights as to why the decisions you're making are the right decisions, that leads to a real need for accountability, basically like taking ownership over that decision-making and, uh, and finally, you know, making an impact. Like at the end of the day, particularly in gaming, I think there are incredibly clear success metrics. So um, impacting the success of the business, um, impacting those KPIs is, is really what we have to all hold ourselves accountable to. That Scopely, is that generally how it's defined? Or could you give us some examples of how they're different at Scopely versus Tala, or if you can speak to it? Yeah, I would say... Um, the kind of principles that I'm laying out are, are in large part how I view what product should be. And, you know, the good thing about building a product culture is you have kind of a, the ability to have a disproportionate say in, uh, in how things are. So I'd, I'd like to believe that these core principles uh, ring true within the, the Scopely product org. And, um, and I'm, I'm very optimistic they'll ring true within product at Tala as well. But I think it's really on each individual leader to kind of make good on some of these principles and, uh, and actually deliver on it. I, I will say that um, certainly from my experience at Scopely, we've built a culture where um, impact and accountability are, are front and center. And, uh, and that's something I very much want to, uh, want to take forward with me throughout the rest of my career. I'll say as well, um, you know, there are just some basic principles on product culture that that again this is more the laundry list that I've picked up over the years versus explicitly saying this exists or doesn't exist at various organizations and and really boils all the way back to my time at Google my, my very first kind of work experience all the way through to uh, to what I'm learning today and that's really you know if I if I had to boil it down into a, a few key points it's execute 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 right? Like execution is king at the end of the day. Start with why. And that's really basically just make sure you're running toward the right goalposts for the right reasons. Make decisions and be accountable, right? Like as, as product leaders, I think um, you're oftentimes faced with very ambiguous situations. So it's going to be your job as a leader to make a decision back up why you made that decision and hold yourself accountable to it. Um, even if information was not perfect, so it really will be learn faster, right? Which is uh, effectively like, it's a very, very dynamic marketplace, tons of competition. I think great product thinkers tend to be the ones that feel a real sense of urgency in terms of expanding their knowledge base, expanding their understanding faster than anyone else. The next piece is be humble. 
which again, I think is, is very tightly tied to, uh, to a learning mentality, but, um, the rules of the game are constantly changing. So, um, so I think you have to be really humble that you're oftentimes going to be wrong or what was right, even in the, the recent past may not be right now. Right. And, and, yeah. and Jeremy, if I, uh, sorry, did you, did you, yeah, yeah. so the question I want to ask you is that, so it sounds like you've got the set of principles that comprise your product culture. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I've often seen organizations struggle with and I've struggled with in the, in the past is like, going from that set of principles to implementing it throughout the organization. Could, could you speak a little bit about that or how, how you've been able to successfully do that at, you know, Scopely or other companies? Definitely. I think it really starts one with articulating the culture, like making it explicit that yeah. this is what we stand for. This is how we intend to operate. Um, but then really creating a structure that enables product to deliver on its role that enables this culture. Right. Um, so that can start at the top with just defining clear areas of ownership, clear North Star metrics, clear business goals, um, and ensuring that you're actually trusting people to deliver great results um, and setting the example for what it means to hold your team accountable. I think it ties into talent as well in a very meaningful way, right? Both in recruiting and performance management. Because, I mean, there's, there's kind of, a, I think, a, a simple saying that I think is actually relatively powerful, right? Which is A players will bring in A players, B players will bring in C players. Uh, I've really found that to be true through, through my professional experiences. So I think there should be a massive priority on identifying and nurturing your A players and ensuring that when you bring new people onto your team, that they fit into that definition as well. Okay. And then in, in terms of like the team building aspects, are, are there any specific thoughts that you have in terms of you're mentioning focusing on your A players, but are there any other principles or aspects that you've kind of followed or learned about as you're trying to build a team? Another thing that is really powerful is just setting the expectations early around collaboration and trust and, and leading from the front. So that means taking the time to uh, to really get to know your people at both the personal and professional level and making sure that you're creating a space that's safe enough to have real conflict and real debate, right? right? Everyone on the team needs to feel like the idea is what's going to win, not the person, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which ties back to some of those kind of principles around humility and learning um, and just you know, ensuring that, that everyone on the team is operating with those principles and, and that you as a leader are setting a good example when it comes to acting on them. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much for that. Now kind of moving to this next area that I wanted to talk about was, okay, so you've learned all these great lessons. You've had really great experience in mobile and free to play. So what are some of the key things that you've learned that you now think that you're going to be able to apply either in this new role at Tala or like some of the key lessons or principles that, that you think can be more generally applied to other verticals? Yeah, I think um, the great thing about mobile gaming is I do believe it's a fantastic training ground for a lot of different industries and opportunities just given how fast paced and dynamic and, and data oriented it is. Um, and when I think about what I'm hoping to take with me into my next experience, when I think is, is more generally uh, applicable outside of gaming, there are really three key things for me. 
first is product culture, right? Like we just spent a good amount of time talking about that. But I think the idea of the role that product can play in a product oriented culture within an organization is something that translates very, very well to really any company that is providing a consumer oriented experience. And so I think, you know, establishing that, um, establishing those principles and, and working towards those principles is yeah, paramount from my perspective. The next is relentless execution. Gaming for better or for worse in many ways is a relatively red ocean space. There is massive competition. Everyone is, uh, everyone is trying to do what you're doing. And if they're not, then you're probably making a bad decision somewhere in some way. And, uh, and yeah, when you're in that kind of uh, ecosystem, it just really emphasizes how much of a role great execution can play. I think some other industries have the luxury to not think about that because there are more natural tailwinds or more of kind of a growing audience to serve in regardless of what your competition is doing. But if you out execute um, or if you improve execution, it is it is going to very, very meaningfully differentiate you from the the trajectory you may have been on before. And I just, I think it always, always boils down to results and execution. And then the final thing, which um, traditionally would, would probably not be associated with kind of classic free to play product managers, or, or maybe some of the more negative reputation they have, have tended to have. <laughs> but the, the last key lesson for me is really the human perspective. And, you know, there's a saying that I've really come to love and appreciate, which is the reality of our users is the only reality that matters, right? Like our players don't care what's wrong with our tech platform. They don't care how hard it is to push out new content. They don't care how much it costs to run your team in San Francisco, right? All they care about is like, what's the experience that they're getting offered? And in the case of gaming, there's such an abundance of choice that if you don't offer the best experience, they can go walk away and go somewhere else. But I think it's a really powerful kind of mindset and perspective, which really reorients what you're doing to where do we need to get to provide the right experience to our users, as opposed to what can we do with what we have, which I think leads to you know suboptimal outcomes and and won't necessarily enable the kind of outside the box thinking that you really need for breakthrough success. Right. Okay, great. Now, in terms of the last topic, and there's been so much talk about coronavirus and, and so forth, but I thought it'd be great just because you're now, as you're exiting gaming, you're going to be able to provide a little bit more of an unbiased view in terms of the impact <laughs> of coronavirus on the gaming industry, but maybe some of your thoughts in terms of one some of the longer term impacts of the current sort of situation. And yeah, this is pure speculation on my part. I expect that mobile gaming is going to be one of the most insulated spaces when it comes to impact of coronavirus. You know, obviously, macroeconomic downturn is bad for virtually everyone, but mobile gaming, I think, is relatively resilient in that it's actually a much-needed uh, socializing opportunity. It's a much-needed kind of escape from the outside world. People have more kind of downtime on their hands in many cases. So I'm expecting this to be a bit of a, a boon for mobile games in particular. And within that category, 
what really stands out to me is I think the winners from this whole crisis are going to be one, the, the mobile games that really lean into true social experiences and social interaction, yeah. right? It's, it's more necessary than ever before. And the absence of kind of, I guess, day-to-day human social interactions is going to, to push people to seek those out in, in the games they're playing. And the other, the other trend that I see is this is going to be very good for large established players. I think, you know, fundraising is going to be difficult. You know, cash conservation is king right now across almost every industry. So ability to spend to scale is going to be worse. Um, But the companies that can spend are going to be in a really compelling user acquisition environment where costs have come down, competition is reduced. And talent that are in some of these smaller organizations that can't cut it, that end up closing or downsizing or whatever else, you know, I think, I think major players are going to be in a really good position to scoop up great talent, um, hold on to their best talent uh, more effectively and really grab market share right now in a, in an opportunistic way. Yeah. So probably a good time to be scopely with at scale and with cash. (laughs) Yeah. I mean the, the combination of uh, Scrabble, which is an inherently very, very social experience uh, coming to market plus the existing kind of deep emphasis on, on social gameplay across the portfolio, I think makes it very well positioned and, and yeah, to, to that other point, I just given the position, the market and the relative stability of the company. Yeah. I think, uh, I think this is a very, very good time in the ecosystem to be scopely. Great. So yeah, that's, I think that's it. There you have it, everyone. The key lessons from Jory from his career in mobile gaming and free to play. And it's just to wrap things up, Jory, do you have any message for our audience or are you looking for any specific type of hire or anything like that? Please let us know. Thanks. Yeah. I would say, um, I am always looking for great product talent because that's the, <laughs> I think, you know, one of the, the essential components of, uh, of a successful company. And, um, you know, really, I think if, if the mission resonates with people, I am very happy to chat with them, uh, regardless of whether they're make, looking to make a move or, or just generally interested in, in the new space that I'm in. What's the best way for them to yeah. contact you? reach out via probably LinkedIn. LinkedIn okay. would be the easiest way. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave a link to your LinkedIn in the, in the show notes. So. Awesome. And I would say I'm always happy to riff on, on product and mobile gaming and, and be helpful where I can. It's, it's an amazing space. The access to data and just the kind of like behavioral psychology challenges and opportunities are really one of a kind. So I'm I'm definitely going to be tracking the space closely, uh, even as, as I move into being an outsider in it. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Joy. Great. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye. Bye.